um, by reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21. Now, I do need, as Jack Hunter used to say, I need you to keep your Bibles handy because we're going to be flicking over quite a few verses at the beginning particularly. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now what I want to do at the beginning, and in fact for quite a few minutes, is establish the first point, which is the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through some Bible texts, to show that the Bible teaches us and presents to us the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. And then we will take it beyond that and we'll seek to build on that to establish not just the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus, but the impeccability of the Lord Jesus. So first of all, let's establish the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. And we've read one of these texts in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number twenty. One and it says that he knew no sin. Now you don't have to be going listening to preaching for very long in relation to the Lord Jesus to know these key th three key expressions in relation to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. This being one of them, he knew no sin. That verb no stresses personal experience, and it is saying that he had no personal participation in or no personal experience of. Sin. Now, in the language, the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek here, the tense in which it is found suggests that this is a kind of kind, kind of evaluation of the whole life of the Lord Jesus. So that he had no personal experience of sin throughout his whole life. Now turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 22. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, in fact, you don't need to turn to it, actually. It'll probably be quicker if I just quote it to you. But if you're taking notes, 1 Peter 2, 22, it says, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And Peter, remember, is writing out of three years of consistent close experience and life with the Lord Jesus. And again, the tense of this word would indicate a statement that is a summary of his whole life. So it is not just pointing to a particular moment in his life and saying at that moment he did not sin, but rather here is a statement covering his life, he did no sin at any point and for all his life. And Peter was up close and personal in that sense to the Lord Jesus. He rubbed shoulders with him for three years. If the Lord Jesus had sinned, Peter would have seen it or heard it, but he uses this citation from Isaiah 53, verse 9, and he's affirming that the suffering servant of Jehovah is the Lord Jesus and was without sin in his actions. So he knew no sin, no personal experience or knowledge of sin. He did no sin. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says that ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So he knew no sin, he did no sin, and in him is no sin. Now, in this verse, it's teaching us that as sinners, we are lawless. 
But Christ was different. He was manifested to take away our sins. And the man who sins is a person who thwarts the purpose of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ was the only one who could come to take away our sins because in him is no sin. So he could be the sin bearer because he was sinless. Sin did not exist in him, therefore he could take it upon himself and bear its full weight of judgment. So these three key expressions, he knew no sin, he did no sin, in him there is no sin. Now when you contrast the Lord Jesus with every other person that's ever lived, male or female, young or old, you find this, that we know sin. We have personal experience of sin. We find this, that we do sin. And we also find that in us is sin. So the Lord Jesus is being presented to us in relation to sin as being unique and being apart from sin, sinless. But then there are other scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And in that text, the Lord Jesus is called the just, the just one. Now that is a word that can refer to a person who is sinless. Or it can also refer to a person who has had righteousness imputed to them. Okay, so righteousness put onto their account, such as us who are Christians. Now, the Lord Jesus did not have righteousness imputed to him in that we have had. He essentially is righteous. He is intrinsically righteous. That is his very essence. We can say that we are just because we have been justified. But the Lord Jesus is not just because of an action toward him in righteousness and grace, but rather he is just in and of himself, essentially as to his character. So the Lord Jesus does not have any imputed righteousness. His righteousness is his own inherent righteousness. So we learn that he is sinless in that he knew no sin, he did no sin, and in him there is no sin. We learn that he's absolutely righteous, inherently so, as opposed to imputed righteousness that we gain as a result of his work on the cross and that happens to us when we become Christians. Then also Hebrews 7 verse 26 says, Such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Now, in that verse, note the adjectives. Holy, harmless, undefiled. Now, the first of these is not the usual word for holy. The Bible speaks of us as holy ones and translates that as saints. Now, the word that is ordinarily used for a Christian who is holy is the word that means one who is set apart. But this word is not a word of position, set apart. It's rather a word that has the implication of being devout or pious or pure. Okay? 
Now, the other adjectives that are used here are adjectives that refer to his guilelessness and his purity. And when you bring these together, the combination of these words expresses the wonderful sinlessness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what the priests were in the Old Testament, typically ceremonially and legally in terms of their religious system, the Lord Jesus is essentially internally and morally. So when you look at all of the procedures and the sacrifices and all of the purification ceremonies that the priests went through in the Old Testament, they find their fulfillment in reality, in his moral character in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is the high priest who is able by his own inherent worth to offer the sacrifice that is sufficient for the sins of the people of God. And so what you find is just this, that he required no sacrifice for himself, unlike the priests. And he was able to offer himself, unlike the priesthood, to offer animals. So in terms of the offer, in terms of the offering, he is absolutely suitable and perfect. Why? Because he had no moral defilement in himself. So when you look to the cross, there you see the Lord Jesus going to the cross. You see the Lord Jesus' blood being shed. You see his sacrifice being offered. And he is perfectly suited to do it. And the only one suited to do it. Why? Because of his moral, righteous impeccability. His sinlessness. Okay? So... Let's move on. Uh, one of the writers says this, he in himself is the antitype of all those priests of the Old Testament whose holiness was outward, connected with the tabernacle and with the garments that they wore when they carried out the priestly services. He is himself, holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners higher than the heavens. Now, in his life, there were those who bore testimony to this. It was so obvious. Not always those who believed in him. Even the demons testified to the holiness of the one that stood before them. John chapter 6 verse 69. We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The ESV translates it. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, so here is testimony from those who are following, from those who are not following, and the testimony is consistent, and we'll come through some of it. But that word for holy means set apart for a purpose. The Lord Jesus is testified to in those terms. He is absolutely devoted to God without any defect whatsoever. Luke chapter 4, verse 34, an individual possessed of the spirit of an unclean demon acknowledges this, saying, Let us alone, what, we have, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So there is the testimony there. In John chapter 8 and verse 46, the Lord Jesus himself testifies to this. Do you remember? He stands and says to people, which one of you convinceth me of sin? Now, mind you, that's a bold assertion, especially in front of your enemies. He puts himself up there and out there. It's a staggering assertion of confidence in his own sinlessness. 
he dares challenge his enemies publicly. And he says, which of you can convict me of sin? No other figure in history can make that claim. None. And no one can do it and get away with it, but he is a person and he had already pointed out the evil within their hearts and he points that evil in their hearts and sin in their lives and then he says, now your turn. Point to any in me. Point to any in me. There was absolute sinlessness. You know, it's interesting when you read the letters and the writings of great women and men of God, I was reading a little thing uh, by John Piper about Elizabeth Elliot that he posted on Facebook. He'd written a year ago. Amazing testimony to Elizabeth Elliot. And when you read her writings and when you read other writings of great men and women of God down through the generations, what you discover is that they do describe their holiness. But they describe it in terms of a terrible personal struggle. And so great men and women of God testify to the reality of their struggle for holiness. And usually in the writings, there's a lot about their own failings and failures and, and all the rest of it. In the Lord Jesus, in the whole testimony of Scripture to him, there is not one single mention of failure or sin or a lack of holiness. Hebrews 9 verse 14 how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God without blemish that again is referring to these Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrificial lamb that was brought you remember had to be without blemish and it's a picture it's a picture of the Lord Jesus that Passover lamb pointing forward to the lamb of God that John pointed out. And there he is walking on earth. That beautiful fulfillment of the spotless lamb. And he walks as one who fulfills it in all its perfection. Without a single defect. Without a single stain of sin. Without a moral defilement. Without a bad thought. Without a bad motive. Without even the desire for badness within him. He's not just like a blank canvas. He's not, as I said, some two-dimensional, flat, emotionless being. He's someone who interacts with emotion and reality in relationships and in the workplace and in his relationship with his father. And he's alive and he's living and he speaks and he thinks and he, he interacts and it's all without sin. Outstanding. Not parked in some lonely place you know, up the top of a, a pinnacle of a rock, you know, cut off from everything. But in the kind of hurly-burly of Nazareth, in the marketplace, dealing with corrupt, sinful men and women and all the temptations that Satan must have sought to brought across his path, not a single flicker within his breast of sin. Marvelously and uniquely and wondrously sinless. The Lord Jesus is not a man like we are. He's not. He is perfect in his manhood. He is fully man, sin apart. He was a sinless man. He is a sinless man. Free from original sin. 
He did not inherit depravity. He was not born a sinner. He was free from inherited guilt that sin brings. He was free from any thought or act of sin. Now, when you look at any sort of weighty book about theology in relation to this, you discover that they start bringing out Latin expressions. Now, I never did Latin at school. Some of you may be dead. Some of you are nodding. Some of you may speak Latin. I don't know. So I'm not going to... Oh, Mark does. I'm not going to try and uh, talk to you in Latin. I'll give you the English translation of it. But there are three key expressions in relation to sin and mankind. Then mark these. Think of them carefully, okay? There is, first of all, the expression, and it's awkward in English, not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. That's the moral position of every single person on earth who is not a Christian. That's the moral position of natural man. And if anyone is a Christian in here, that is your moral position. And all of us who are Christians, that was our moral position. Not able not to sin. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. The second statement is able not to sin. Now that is the moral position of those who are Christians. Regenerate in Christ. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. There's no circumstance in life where we are under a compulsion other than self-generating a compulsion to sin. We are able not to sin. Because Christ has broken the mastery of sin in our life. That was also true of the Lord Jesus. We've seen that in his sinlessness. He was able not to sin. But there is a single category in relation to sin which is exclusively his. And it is not able to sin. Not able to sin. So the three of these, not able not to sin. In other words, you cannot help but sin. That's the moral position of natural man. Regenerated man is able not to sin, that being true of the Lord Jesus as well. But that single category that is exclusively his, not able to sin. That's a statement of the impeccability of Christ. It's the moral position of Jesus Christ by virtue of his undiminished deity at incarnation and beyond incarnation. And we've established that deity and we've established the unchangeability of Christ. So what Christ has been eternally, unchangeably so, he is within his manhood and he is eternally. And because of that unchangeable deity of Christ, we can say with absolute confidence, as we're going to dig into it in a moment, that he alone is not able, I'm going to kill that fly, he alone is not able, I'm going to kill it, it's 
Scotland. <laughs> he is not able to sin. Now, let's dig into this. The impeccability of Christ. Does this matter? Well, this matters. <laughs> I'm just about to sin. That keeps coming. I think I got it. Um, this rests so firmly on the deity of Christ. It is very important. This is not just a moot point. We're going to see this as important in relation to his wilderness temptation. This is important in relation to his statements in Gethsemane. It wasn't that he was, and excuse me for saying, weighing things up in the garden and wondering what the outcome would be. Would he or wouldn't he? So we need to see this. It's important. And there are important implications for us. So let's dig into this. God manifest in flesh. The impeccability of Christ resting four square upon what we've established in the two sessions previously. Now, in order to see this, let's get a, a little point here. That the moral actions of Christ here upon earth could not be done without implications as to his moral and eternal character. So the things he did here are intrinsically linked to who he essentially is in himself. Because he always has to act according to his character. Christ can never act out of character. Everything flows and is consistent with who he is. So then, Jesus Christ is both God and man. We've seen that, and I want to see it a bit more. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, historically the humanity of Christ has rarely been questioned. It isn't a particularly contentious aspect of Christian doctrine that Jesus Christ was a man. Now, historically in AD 325, there was a great council, I think you see of Nicaea, I think you pronounce it N-I-C-E-A, and that historical council of Christians solidified the Christian church's teaching on the deity of Christ, on the deity of Christ. There was another council, and I'm going to try and announce this one, at 451, and they came up with a statement, which I'm going to read to part of it to you, it's magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. A statement on an accepted definition and understanding of the union of Christ's manhood and deity. They wrestled with that all these years ago. I mean, they all weren't just running about in sandals and togas and, you know, unintelligent people and people without understanding of the word of God in those days. It's not as if we've somehow discovered all sorts of things that these people didn't wrestle with. Wait till you hear what they came up with. And they got together because they realised this is something hard to understand. Yet, Scripture is teaching that Christ is God and Christ is man. And we believe in the absolute fullness of his manhood. And we believe in the absolute fullness of the deity. And we, we, we're struggling with this. How can it be? And so they did wrestle with it. And they came up with this. Now listen carefully. You can get this you know, on the internet or whatever. This is worth 
picking apart. They spoke of the Lord Jesus. One and the same Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ. The same. Perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Of a reasonable, that means rational, soul and body. Consubstantial, that means coessential, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of Mary, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's some statement. That's not something you can just take in in a flash. But when you pick that apart, what they came to understand the teaching of the Bible to be is this. God was fully man. The Lord Jesus, sorry, was fully God. The Lord Jesus was fully man. Not a hybrid. And God and man existing indivisibly, inseparably, strangely together. And they called it the hypostatic union. And if you Google that, you'll see all sorts of very difficult works of scholars on that issue. It stretches your mind to get into it. It's worth getting into to learn of it. How could this be? <coughs> How can a person be both human and divine, infinite and finite, invisible yet visible, eternal yet temporal, spiritual and physical, omnipotent yet suffering, omniscient yet limited in knowledge? How can it be? And they came up with this expression, the hypostatic union, the English adjective, the hypostatic coming from a Greek word, and that word appearing in the Bible four times. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's where the word comes from. That personal union of deity and manhood. Not two persons. One person. Fully God and fully man. And his incarnation diminishing neither. Diluting neither. But fully in all the fullness, in one person. The Lord Jesus displaying those attributes that are uniquely divine, miracles of healing, knowledge of what was in man, these unique seven attributes that we've seen. Yet, by choice and according to divine purpose, limiting his own exercise of his divine prerogatives and attributes, so that, 
For example, Matthew 24, verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Certain things that within the Godhead, they determined that the Son would not know. The self-exercise of the limitation of his knowledge, his self-limitation in his incarnation, For the very nature of incarnation calls upon the invisible, omnipresent God to become visibly present in one place at one time. How can that be? It's a marvellous mystery, but it's true. And this self-limitation of Christ in his incarnation, he did not divest himself, he did not take off anything of what he essentially is, fully God. Yet he chose, according to divine purpose and in order for redemption, to not enjoy the inevitable consequences that flow from his divine attributes. Now this all seems complicated. Just chew on it. Just mull it over. Think in it. Get your mind going to embrace it. It's marvellous. John 4, verse 34, the Lord Jesus says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. He, when he came down, he came down in submission to the Father, not inferior, but self-accepted voluntary submission. John 5, verse 34, I can do nothing on my own. He's the omnipotent God. But he says, I can do nothing on my own. Why? In the Godhead, they determined that he would be submissive to his Father. I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 6, 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so you could go on. Listen, in order to accomplish the eternal plan of redemption, I'm quoting, God the Son, while incarnate, voluntarily surrendered up the independent use of his divine attributes to God the Father. He neither divested himself of them nor lost the use of them, but rather exercised them only when it was God the Father's good pleasure for him to do so. Now you think about the humiliation of Christ at his incarnation. Never mind what followed. Think about the birth of Christ. We talk about his steps down. Think of it. The one who is essentially an undiminished deity steps into time. That child is God who has willingly submitted himself To the Father and become a man. Why? Why? Well, the reason is in this room. We are the reason. We are the reason for his humiliation. Our sin, our salvation. Yes, the glory of God is at stake, I understand that, but listen. He came to deal with sin. Not as an abstract. He came to deal with our sin. And he came down for us. It's marvellous. And so when you think about this, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Don't divide them. Yes, fully God and fully man together, but, but don't think, please, that you can then tug them apart as if intelligently we can sort of draw the Lord. The Lord, you can't say the Lord Jesus did miracles and as God he was doing miracles. It was the Lord Jesus doing the miracles. You can't say it was just his human nature that hungered and suffered and, and, and all that kind of thing. He himself as a person, do not divide, do not separate. Listen to what these Christians in 400 odd AD were saying and, and, and work it in. Indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided, but together in their whole. The best example I have of is the Ark of the Covenant. You've got a box that's made of two... Two, two entities. It's made of wood and it's made of gold. It's made of acacia wood, which is incorruptible wood. The wood of the wilderness speaks of the impeccability of Christ. That wood did not corrupt. The Ark of the Covenant was made by that wood being constructed and then being overlaid within and without with pure gold. Not gold. Other aspects of it was made with gold. That was made with pure gold. You see, the emphasis is that that gold that was sealed in a way, I don't know how they did it in those days, it was fused onto the wood, overlaid within and without, so that that became one entity. You could not separate the wood from the, the gold. And it speaks of the undiminished deity of Christ and the impeccable manhood of Christ in one entity. And it became the Ark of the Covenant. And upon the Ark of the Covenant lay the mercy seat. Pure gold. You see, the Lord Jesus is that. And the marvel of it is that he came down to deal with sin. Now what about his temptations? When you say that the Lord Jesus could not sin, then a question gets raised. Can an impeccable person be tempted? To me it's an obvious question. Why take him into the wilderness if it wasn't possible for him to sin? What's the purpose of it? It's a foregone conclusion. There is no temptation, surely. I mean, after all, what's the pressure in being tempted to do something you can't do? I mean, it, it doesn't seem a temptation in itself. I mean, the Lord Jesus had nothing within himself to react to temptation put from without of him. No sin nature to suggest or react. The prince of this world came and had nothing in him. But we learn from scripture, he was in all points tempted, as we are, apart from sin. So is it possible to attempt the impossible? Ask yourself that question. Is it possible to attempt the impossible? Yes. You see... The idea that temptability implies susceptibility is flawed. The fact that you can tempt someone implies that they are susceptible to that temptation is flawed reasoning. It's one plus one equals six. The one does not imply the other. It does with us. There's an inevitability of susceptibility because of our sin, but not him. 
Again, chew on that. Think about that. Is it possible, as one scholar put it, for a rowing boat to attack a battleship? Well, it's possible to attack it, but it's never going to conquer it. So you can attempt the impossible. Go ahead. But it's never going to happen. The, this idea, and there are many other examples like that, is, a, is such an important point. Let me say it again. The idea that temptability implies susceptibility is not sound reasoning. The viewpoint that temptation must not be real if the person is impeccable is not accurate. It's not accurate reasoning. A person who cannot sin, it is said, cannot be tempted to sin. That's not correct. Any more, as a writer said, than it can be correct to say that an army cannot be conquered, therefore it cannot be attacked. It can be attacked, even though it cannot be conquered. The Lord Jesus was open to all forms of human temptation. Accepting those that sprung out of lust or corruption of nature. Not possible. These temptations were strong. They could not succeed and induce him to sin, but they still were strong. And so he was not able to sin, but he was able to be tempted. They were real. Think of the wilderness. The Lord Jesus had never experienced the inner struggle of two natures. Never Romans 7 with the Lord Jesus. But think of the wilderness. The temptation to turn stones into bread was all the more powerful for Christ because he actually could do it. He actually could do it. The temptation to make a public display of God's preservation of Christ by casting himself from the temple was very real. No one else had ever been offered the glory of the world by Satan. He was. He didn't sin. Listen, the sensitivity of Christ to temptation was far greater than ours. He was morally pure, absolutely stainless and spotless. Think about him in Gethsemane. There he is. And if his body is acutely sensitive, unstained by sin, you think about that, a body unstained by sin, acutely sensitive to hunger and thirst in a way that we are not. His senses, his sensitivity, absolutely perfect. You think about him in Gethsemane, in his holiness, and you think about him with what lay before him and the awfulness of it all and the willing submission of his will to his Father. On the cross, think about the temptation, the taunt of the enemies to come down from the cross. He willingly continued in suffering and also of his own will dismissed his own spirit. Were the temptations real? They were very real. And the weight of them extremely heavy. Many theologians are quoting, point out that only he who successfully resists a temptation to the end 
most fully feels the force of the temptation. We all succumb. He never did. So the weight was very great for him. Just as a champion weightlifter who successfully lifts and holds overhead the heaviest weight in the contest feels the force of it more fully than the one who attempts to lift it and drops it. You're standing under that weight and holding it. You feel the full force of it. Any Christian who has successfully faced a temptation to the end knows it's far more difficult than giving it into at once. So it is with the Lord. Every temptation he faced, he faced to the end. Every temptation. And triumphed. The temptations were real, even though they did not induce him to sin. Listen to what some of the writers, Alexander McLaren, he wrote this, Scottish, 1826 to 1910, he lived, he wrote this, his will never wavered, but remained supreme over the natural recoil of his human nature from pain and death. If he had not felt the cross to be a dread, it had no sacrifice. If he had allowed the dread to penetrate his will, he would have been no saviour. It was real. Let me finish with this. This is another Spurgeon quote. O my soul, stand and admire this blessed doctrine of perfection in Christ Jesus. What though thou shouldst become more pure and pure every day, yet perfection would still be beyond thee. The heights say perfection is not in them. The depths say perfection is not here. The caverns and the bowels of the earth tell us perfection is not in us. Perfection is in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Oh, Christian, think of this. The robes of Jesus are put on thee. The royal crown Christ Jesus wore is now to God's eyes on thy head. The robe of azure which once he had upon his shoulders is now in thine. His silver sandal is thine. The golden zone his belt of glory is thine. The matchless purity of his sinless life is thine. Everything that Christ has is thine. Thou art perfect in him. There is nothing that you can want, which he cannot give. Isn't that beautiful? Why is that? Because he is absolutely impeccable. Impeccable. Let us not allow others to diminish that, for whatever reason. Let us understand that the impeccability of Christ is rooted in the immutability of Christ which is rooted in the deity of Christ. And as we think about these things, let us rejoice in this, that although we are like him now as Christians and have a responsibility to be increasingly like him in this, there is coming a day when we will be like him and what we admire in him, in his inability to sin, 
will one day be true of us. So that it will not just be that we are able not to sin. That's true today. There's coming a day where we will not be able to sin. And that's an eternal day. And that's that for which we have been saved. What an expectation. Our eternal existence without a sinful thought, without a broken relationship, without a motive that's impure, without a, a failing and a flaw, without physical issues we have to face, without those issues of our mind which we have to face, but complete in him and like him and absolutely impeccable ourselves in that coming day. You say, well, I'll just leave that then for that day. The expectation of God is that that will be our aspiration and our inspiration that we get as close as God gives us the help to be from day to day. Because that's our goal. A life without sin. That's our goal. A month without sin. No, we need to bring it down. That's our goal. A week without sin. To keep coming down. Let's get realistic. Let's try an hour without sin. And once we get an hour past, without knowing sin, then we might try again. We need to allow the sinless perfection of Christ to so attract our affection and so grip us as being that which we love to look upon, that we would seek to know something of it in our own soul. Trust that that will be a blessing to us as we think of the Lord Jesus. Let's just pray and give God thanks for his word again.